Feeney and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. Welcome back to Legal Face Off on WGN. We're now very honored to welcome Jill Winebanks, who's tried to get on the show for years. She's much sought after as an author, legal analyst, uh, attorney. Uh, her resume is way too long and impressive for us to mention, but I will say a couple of important things that she was awarded the highest civilian award given by the United States Department of the Army for her work uh, with the Department of Justice. She was also the first female to serve as the COO of the American Bar Association. Jill Weinbanks, thank you for joining us on Legal Face Off. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be making this appearance. So it's very uh, opportune time because August 8th is the anniversary of when President Nixon announced that he was resigning from the presidency. This was in 1974. And uh, I know you are humble about this, but we can trace that date to a lot of the work you did uh, that you enumerate, that you talk about in your book. So your book talks about your role as the only female attorney in the Watergate prosecution. I wonder how much pressure you felt carrying the weight carrying that weight um, as a representative of, the, of what at that time was a very small percentage of lawyers being female and an even smaller percentage being uh, courtroom attorneys. So did you feel the weight of you know, an entire gender as you were walking into this prosecution? I definitely did. It's sort of like being the older sister. Uh, if you make a mess of things your younger sister is going to suffer the consequences. And there was definitely that sense of, I have to do this, not just for the case, not just for myself, but for all women. Uh, and when you talk about percentages, when I started practicing law, only 4% of all lawyers were women. And of that 4%, <clears throat> almost none were trial lawyers. So I was definitely a lonely figure um, my Watergate trial team, by the way, was extremely wonderful to me. I felt no, no discrimination there. None. Jill, your book, again, is fascinating. And it goes into some detail of some key parts of that trial. Again, one of the most important trials in our nation's history. And specifically, I'm wondering what it was like to cross-examine Rosemary Woods. For our listeners who might be a little bit younger, Rosemary Woods was President Nixon's uh, secretary. Now we would call her a legal system, but she was really much more like you. She was really a trailblazer in that she really was more of an advisor to President Nixon, your book uh, talks about. But because of the time, she was considered a secretary. So it's really fascinating that you had this dilemma of having to cross-examine this woman who was really, again, um, at the forefront of... Uh, of that kind of job and a half minute gap uh, taping system. So did you sort of feel some maybe mixed emotions about, about cross-examining Rosemary Woods? I think I feel much more sympathy for her now in retrospect. At the time, I was focused on truth. I was focused on facts. And it's a fascinating story about her and what I've learned since the trial um, in terms of how much of an advisor to the president she was. When you listen to tapes of conversations between just the two of them, you can tell that he relied on her opinion and her judgment. Um, she's the one who told the family that Richard Nixon was resigning. He was afraid to go and tell his wife and daughters. And he had her, Rosemary Woods, tell the family. So you can see how close they were. Um, and cross-examining her became, you know, now that there's a Perry Mason television series again, maybe my reference to Perry Mason will be understood by everyone. But Perry Mason used to cross-examine people and get them to admit that they were the ones who did it, not his client. He did it every night on television. It doesn't mm. happen in a real courtroom, but it happened to me in cross-examining her where she was the one taking the blame for creating an 18 and a half minute gap in one of the crucial White House tapes. And when I asked her to demonstrate how she did it, she failed. The tape did not erase. 
And it, it was one of those moments where you're standing there going, I just showed she lied. I caught her <laughs> red handed. I mean, it was it was a dramatic courtroom moment. And to the point where reporters, again, this is way before the Internet era, ran out of the courtroom to use the pay phones to call their stories in, right? Exactly. Um, the courtroom was so crowded that the court clerk actually let reporters sit in the jury box, which meant they were sitting adjacent to the witness box and they could see the failure faster than anyone else in the courtroom could. <clears throat> and again, no cell phones. They had to run out of the courtroom to call the story in from what my generation recognizes as a bank of payphones, um, something that they still have, by the way, in the Hall of, of Congress. There's no phone in them, but they actually have some phone booths. So it's it's something you can still see, but almost as in a museum. Back then, it was how you communicated. Unbelievable. So, Joe, we talked earlier about the, uh, what, now 46th anniversary of the day that President Nixon resigned in the wake of Watergate. Uh, this, again, was directly related to the work that you and your colleagues did, later pardoned by uh, his successor, Gerald Ford. I'm wondering, had Nixon, I know you've thought about this, had Nixon gone to prison, do you think that would have had a effect, you would have a deterrent effect on Donald Trump <laughs> from the wrongdoing that he's been accused of so many years later, because it would have sent a message that no president is, in fact, above the law? You know, it's interesting. I actually haven't thought about that question. It's a great question. Um, usually I'm asked, you know, was the pardon the right thing to do? And I have mixed feelings about that, um, that I can go into. But your question is much more interesting. I actually, unfortunately, don't think that anything will deter <laughs> Donald Trump. He seems to have no understanding of history and no moral compass. So I don't know that he would have learned from it. But maybe, it might be, um, there was no question of the guilt of Richard Nixon. The evidence was clear. I think the evidence is equally clear against Donald Trump. And I am hoping that in November, we will have President Biden instead of uh, Donald Trump and that we can move on to a time. You know, my, my book is largely uh, about a time when democracy worked, when there was bipartisan cooperation, when justice prevailed and I hope we can return to that era because that's what America is really all about. The book is The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President. Interesting subtitle because obviously that title <laughs> can be used today, so it's very prescient. Jill, uh, we're out of time. We'd love to have you back. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about your stellar career. Uh, please join us again on Legal Faceoff on WGN. Thank you. I would love to do that. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome to another edition of Legal Faceoff on WGN. I'm your co-host, Rich Leinkoff. Tina, welcome. Hello. How you doing on your road trip, Rich? <laughs> I am on my road trip. We're a little challenged today, but we'll get it done. I'm on my way to beautiful downstate Illinois, so... Uh, no trip makes, uh, there's no trip that's more important than legal face-off. We know that. So we're without Sam today, so we're going to get rolling here. We've got a really amazing lineup of guests and then a really interesting uh, array of stories straight from breaking news in our legal grab bag. But to lead us off, we've got Professor Edward Foley from Ohio State University. He is also the Director of Election Law at Ohio State University School of Law. Professor, welcome to Legal Face-Off. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks. So, Professor, I'll call you Ned. Uh, last week, President Trump tweeted about the possibility of delaying November's election due to COVID-19 and issues with mail-in voting. 
which initiated since then a flurry of comments and communications from the White House and other members of Congress. Can you bring our listeners up to speed on where this debate stands and what the president's rationale is for calling the timing of Election Day into question? Sure, I'll try. Um, I mean, the bottom line is uh, the president can't change the day that we vote, November 3rd. It's also important to remember that's not just voting for president, but also the congressional elections. And Congress sets the date for both of that. And they have to take place because the 20th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution ends current terms. It ends the term for the president at noon on January 20th. So if there's no election, he's out of office and there would be an acting president, actually speaker, the Speaker of the House, so maybe Nancy Pelosi. So there needs to be an election uh, to know who the new president's going to be and also to know who the new Congress is going to be. Um, now, there's some other sets of dates in between the, between the time we vote on November 3rd as citizens and inauguration on January 20th. There are some intermediate dates that we can talk about. And actually, the latest news out of Congress is a proposal from Senator Marco Rubio to adjust those intermediate dates. And I'd be happy to talk about that, too. Yeah, Professor, let's get into that a little bit. And also, I mean, who actually could change Election Day if it were to be changed? And has it ever been done? What circumstances would allow for that? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, only Congress can do this for federal elections. You know, for governor, that's the state's job. But we're talking Congress, we're talking the presidency. Uh, Congress sets these dates. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and that would have to be bipartisan under the current Congress, obviously. And in fact, the president would have to sign that law. Uh, so, you know, it seems unlikely for certainly, the, and, and as you may know, after he floated this idea, there was bipartisan, uh, uh, criticism of it. I mean, you had Senator Mitch McConnell, for example, saying November 3rd is not being being changed. Um, but I do think there is the possibility of movement on these intermediate dates, which are important from a legal perspective, but for the average citizen, the average citizen, it probably doesn't matter that the electors themselves vote on December 14th. But actually, you and I, as citizens, we don't vote for president. We just vote for electors. Uh, and the real presidential election, believe it or not, is Monday, December 14th. But don't tell your parents that or your kids because they'll get confused. They got to vote on November 3rd. Um, but the Defe December 14th date, there's talk of moving that to January 2nd, which is, and the reason for that may relate to the reason why there's all this discussion is that because of all the vote by mail or absentee voting this year, whatever you want to call it, there's going to be a lot more of it. Uh, and that's going to um, cause the counting process to be different. It's going to still have integrity. You can still trust the counting of the ballots. But that process is going to look a little bit different because of more, more vote by mail. And because of that, and for, actually, this idea of moving the date that the electors meet has been an idea that some of us in, the, in the, this world have advocated for years for technical reasons we could discuss. Is there any precedent for moving the date? I mean, obviously, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, moving an election date is obviously a very big deal. But then the, the question is, what kind of precedent is there for doing this? Yeah, not a last-minute uh, change of the date that we as citizens vote in a major election like for presidency. But, there, you know, there was a... Uh, you know, the terrorist attack of 9-11, you know, tragedy happened actually on a primary election day uh, in New York City. And that did have to be moved. A Hurricane Katrina interfered with an election. Um, COVID itself, back in March, caused the changing of the dates of primaries. Um, many of the primaries this year have been moved. So, but, but in terms of a November presidential or congressional election, no, that's always been fixed. Um, but, but there's been some adjustment to this overall calendar. It used to be that inaugurations were on March 4th, and it was the 20th Amendment to the Constitution to move that to January 20th. So it's not like these dates are somehow you know, permanently sacrosanct. Well, the Constitution does say one thing, which is that the electors themselves must vote on the same day all around the country. So it doesn't have to be December 14th. 
But that date has to be the same in all 50 states. Professor, last question, and really quickly, uh, any chance the Supreme Court takes up this issue if Trump litigates it? And what are the chances that given the seemingly conservative nature of the current decisions in the last term that weren't exactly, uh, they would side with uh, the arguments on this issue? Yeah, so I think we're likely to see the U.S. Supreme Court getting involved in more election issues this year. There's just a zillion cases percolating in the lower courts involving absentee voting and other parts of the voting process. And we've seen already more of it out of Wisconsin and and elsewhere. Um, And so far, some of those lineups have been sort of five, four, five conservatives, four liberals. But I I do think there's some fluidity there. Again, uh, Chief Justice Roberts hasn't always agreed with President Trump on everything, including, you know, the subpoenas and so forth. So I I wouldn't bank on anything at this point, other than there is going to be litigation. Um, It may not be over the the dates. It may be over the method of voting, like absentee voting. But it's going to be a bumpy and wild ride um, in terms of keeping your eye on the ball. But I I, don't assume our system is going to fail. You know, we we may actually have an election this year that works. And some people may try to say it didn't work because they don't want it to work. But don't don't be self-defeatist to begin with. We're going to have to watch it unfold. And it may work or it may not. And stay tuned to find out. Professor Edward Foley from The Ohio State University. His new book, Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, is now out. Professor Foley, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Up. Thanks so much for having you. I appreciate it. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. So, you know, very much in the news lately is whether you can require someone legally to wear a mask. We've got Professor Emeritus John Finn from the Department of Government at Wesleyan, who's an expert on this topic. He's also the author of Fracturing the Founding, How the Alt-Right Corrupts the Constitution. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the constitutionality of mask mandates. So since the onset of COVID, just to create some context for our conversation, there have been a number of restrictions that have been put in place, including mask mandates. And while many are willing to comply, we all know that there are a lot of folks that are also not willing to comply. Are mask mandates constitutional or are they unconstitutional? Well, the the quick answer, and in this case, the quick answer is pretty much the correct answer, is that they are, yes, pretty much constitutional. You can imagine all sorts of bizarre, peculiar situations where a particular mask order might fall into some constitutional trouble. But as a general proposition, there's very little question that mask mandates satisfy the Constitution. So one of the reasons anti-maskers give to justify their position is that a mask mandate violates the First Amendment. Do you want to comment on that argument that I think all of us have been seeing a lot of? 
Well, I think there are really two kinds of arguments involved there. One, and these are the ones that I saw first, and I think probably most people have heard of, are is a claim that, that somehow wearing a mask or being required to wear a mask violates your First Amendment right to speech, assembly, or association. And I'll have something to say about that in a second. But more recently, we're also seeing claims that they also violate freedom of religion. Most of those turn out to be free exercise claims. If there hasn't been an establishment clause claim yet, though, I guarantee you one will be coming in the, in the near future. So to just deal with the speech issues, as almost all of your audience will know, there are different kinds of speech claims that get made. You can claim that something violates with your, your right to political speech, for example, or you could claim that it's symbolic speech. The nature of the claim actually really matters because courts will use different analytical frameworks to assess whether the right has been violated and more importantly, to determine what level of judicial review or judicial scrutiny they're going to give the particular mask order. So there are a lot of different ways to think about this. If the government compels you to wear a mask, for example, some people are going to argue that they are being compelled to speak. I'm not sure exactly what they think they are being compelled to say, but a lot of them seem to think they're being compelled to sanctify the idea that the virus is legitimate or that it poses a genuine threat to public health. And they don't believe that so they think a mask compels them to say things that they don't truly believe. That argument is likely to go absolutely nowhere. Others are likely to argue, and I think this is the more plausible explanation, that being compelled to wear a mask interferes with their ability to communicate with other individuals. That might be an association claim. It might be a speech claim. For me, it doesn't really matter. In the end, the case law is completely clear on this. No matter what kind of claim you make, we all understand, or at least we all should understand, that nobody has an absolute right to say anything, anytime, anywhere, whatever they want. That just isn't how the First Amendment works. And no amount of complaining that that isn't the way it works is going to change it. The government may always impose reasonable, sometimes it's has to be more than reasonable, but reasonable restrictions that limit your ability to communicate under the First Amendment. Let's call them time, place, and manner restrictions, for example. Now, you could make arguments that particular laws overburden the right to speak. That, that's a possibility. I could imagine mask mandates that do that. But as a general proposition, no court is likely to doubt that mask restrictions are a reasonable limitation on your not absolute right to say whatever you want, wherever you want. Professor, Professor, others have argued that mask mandates interfere with one's right to liberty, basically that you have the right to make choices over your own body. There's a case from 1905 that you cite that sounds like it's directly on point uh, opposing that view. Well, um, there's undoubtedly a right to liberty, although, as you both know, it's unusual to see liberty claims actually posed as this violates my right to liberty. Usually we talk about it violating some more specific constitutional right, but it doesn't really matter what label you put on it. Speech, liberty, privacy, bodily integrity, all of those have been made. They all, in the end, provoke the kind of response that you saw in the case you just mentioned, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which argued, in essence, that although we do have a fundamental constitutional right to liberty or bodily integrity or privacy or whatever you want to call it, there are times when the state's police power can be invoked to put limitations on your right. In Jacobson, the rule was, is this a reasonable limitation on the right? A contemporary court might require a more strict inquiry. It might, recall, it might require what we call the compelling state interest test. But even there, I think there's little doubt that a narrowly tailored law passed undoubtedly to try to protect the public health would satisfy a standard police power kind of requirement. So, John, as COVID continues to evolve, we are likely going to be seeing more of these cases. Is there ever, let's sort of reframe our conversation a little bit. Is there ever a situation where something like a mask mandate would actually be illegal? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a much more complicated question than the one we started with. So I guess the first thing we'd all want to say is there's a difference between arguing that a mask mandate, any particular mask mandate, is illegal and arguing that it's unconstitutional. The constitutionality question is actually a lot easier and a lot more straightforward. The legality question is going to vary on a lot of different things, not least of which is what's the relevant state law involved. But putting aside state issues just for a minute, I can imagine mask mandates that might, in certain circumstances, violate special education rules or violate certain provisions of the American with Disabilities Act. Now, as it turns out, most mask mandates passed by most states and cities do try actually to comply with all of those kinds of regulatory rules. But there are instances where one could imagine that a state a mask mandate is not sufficiently tailored to pass or to satisfy a specific legal inquiry that might arise under the American with Disabilities Act, for example. What won't happen are those, I'm sure you've seen these, are these fake ADA get out of jail cards that people seem to be producing off the web. And you can go online and find hundreds of these fake IDs that say, I have a condition that the ADA allows me to, that, 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 those are if the stakes weren't so serious, those would be hilarious. Those are not those are not even remotely legitimate. Professor, I have to say we've had a lot of uh, constitutional law professors on the show over the last six years. I don't think we've had many that teach constitutional theory and public law, but also cuisine and popular culture. <laughs> I, those are areas I, that don't often intersect as much as we'd like. So it's we'll have to have you back to talk about the intersection of all those areas. Anytime. If you need an omelet lesson, just let me know. (laughs) Professor John Finn, professor emeritus in the Department of Government at Wesleyan University and author of Fracturing the Founding, How the Alt-Right Corrupts the Constitution. Thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff on WGN. Tina, Rich, thank you so much for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromised commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Next joining us on Legal Faceoff is a local attorney. Uh, we have actually interviewed his partner before in a couple of major cases. We're very happy to have Stephen Blandin. Uh, Stephan is partner and principal in Romanucci and Blandin, Chicago-based, like I mentioned, personal injury firm, really one of the foremost personal injury firms. We've had a lot of cases against this firm. Welcome to Legal Faceoff on WGN, Stefan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, it was recently announced that ComEd struck a deal with federal prosecutors uh, to pay a $200 million fine to the U.S. Treasury and admit its participation in a bribery scheme that handed out jobs, contracts, and uh, money to friends and allies of Illinois Democrat speak, uh, Speaker of the House Michael Madigan in order for Madigan, for, for ComEd to receive favorable treatment for legislation. Ten days later, you filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of several individuals and businesses in Chicago who basically alleged that the legislation involving the scheme ultimately meant that consumers were paying higher electricity bills um, and those same customers were not getting to take part in this amount and this fine. Uh, Explain why you think that this deal is unfair to your clients and to Illinois consumers in general. 
Well, this particular deal has nothing to do with the ratepayers getting any of their money back. Commonwealth Edison has cut a deal where they've admitted to bribery. They've admitted that they've benefited in excess of $150 million at the, uh, at the, uh, as a result of this, but they don't want to give any of the money back to the ratepayers. And the $200 million penalty will not go to the ratepayers. That will go to the Treasury. So we brought this class action. We believe that there is, uh, it, it's, it's actually a lot more, a heck of a lot more than $150 million that Commonwealth Edison bilked from the ratepayers in exchange for this bribery. We believe that the numbers are going to be um, in excess of $150 million per year that this was going on. We think that this is a huge number. Part of the process has been going on for years at Commonwealth Edison. It's how they do business. So we're talking an amount well into the billions, it sounds like. That's right. We, be- we believe that we're going to be able, through forensic um, account- uh, accountants, to go through their books and establish that the money that was stolen from ratepayers is going to be into the billions of dollars as a result of the bribery that they've admitted to. Stephen, I know that I want to read comment statement. Uh, they said we apologize for the past con, not live up to our values, and have made something like it ever happens again. Now, I know that as a personal injury lawyer, you believe, shockingly, that apologies are not enough. As someone who uh, litigates a lot imagine of these cases, my, imagine that. Uh, as someone who litigates these cases myself, I know that you believe that frequently the best way for corporate defendants to prove that they're actually sorry and won't ha- and this won't happen again is through the system we call the jury system. Talk to us, talk, so talk to us about that. No question here. Sure. So we, we filed this lawsuit in the uh, Chancery Division. We're asking for a jury trial. It's time that Commonwealth Edison be judged by uh, the ratepayers by a jury of all of our peers in this case, those folks who are paying the bills on behalf of Commonwealth Edison, not the people who have been put on the Illinois Commerce Commission, um, not the folks who have been bribed, but in fact, the ratepayers who make up the jury. That's the only way you're going to get to the bottom of this. And the idea that Commonwealth Edison has apologized is bizarre. Uh, they're continuing to do it. In fact, this past week, the, the, the uh, CEO of uh, Exelon, the parent company, came out and was demanding more bailouts of their nuclear power plants. The audacity, the arrogance of uh, Mr. Crane to demand that the legislature again bail out their nuclear power plants is shameful. And that's why we need a jury trial in this case. This has been going on for far too long in the state of Illinois. Stephen, I know that this is a civil lawsuit, and you said that your focus is not on Michael Madigan. But Michael Madigan, for those of our listeners who don't know, is the longest-serving leader of any state or federal legislative body in American history, uh, the most powerful figure politically in our state. The U.S. attorney who uh, is leading this probe has said that while Michael Madigan has not yet been charged, that his investigation is vibrant and it is ongoing. I would imagine that if Michael Madigan was charged with a crime, that certainly wouldn't hurt your chance. Yeah, so I didn't apologize. I didn't hear the full question, but I think the gist of what you're asking is really not the focus of our case. 100% of our focus, our energy, is on what Commonwealth Edison is admitted to doing. They're the ones who are profiting from this. Don't forget for one minute that the $1.4 million in bribes that Commonwealth Edison has admitted paying is to benefit them. They're a publicly traded for-profit company. The day that this announcement came out, Commonwealth Edison's stock went up. Clearly, Wall Street believes they got off with a slap on the wrist. And that's what this is about, is to make sure they don't get off with a slap on the wrist, that they stop this practice of bribery. And, uh, you know, Illinois gives Commonwealth Edison a monopoly. They are guaranteed to make a profit. And the fact that they have to resort to bribing 
um, admittedly to bribing politicians so they make an even greater profit. That's just obscene. That's Stefan Blandin, founding partner of Romanucci and Blandin, joining us in Legal Faceoff. Stefan, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff, our favorite segment, Tina, as I go in and out of shades here. Maybe that's a little better. I look like I'm going to x-ray. Um... <laughs> Our favorite segment is Legal Grab Bag. We've got two of our most exciting guests in a long time. I don't just say that every two weeks, by the way. Uh, We've got Brian Noonan. Brian is a WGN radio personality. But Brian, I was very impressed by some of the uh, other words in your resume that were very fascinating. Uh, You're also a stand-up comedian. Correct. You're a master of ceremonies. Yes, all ceremonies I have mastered. That's right. You're a substitute teacher as well. Where do you sub? Uh, Mostly in Berwyn. I actually go to Spenguli's house and teach him remedial reading. It's, um, (laughs) I put it on the, you know, some people embellish on their resume, Rich. That's what I do. But no, I teach, uh, I do teach a lot in Berwyn and River Forest. And uh, it's fun. Now it's, now I'm not, obviously. I'm just waiting to, uh, waiting to see some kids in person, which sounds odd here on a legal program to say that, but uh, I think you know what I mean. Yes. Brian, tell our listeners a little bit more about what you've done at WGN in your long-term career here at WGN Radio. I have been at WGN for uh, for a while. I started out just doing one weekend overnight. Then, I, then it turned into all of weekends and fill-ins. Then for a few years, I hosted Sports Night with uh, David Kaplan and Andrea Darlis. Then I did my own show. It's been... Uh, I've done every show on WGN except the Great Outdoors and the Lutheran Hour. Those are the only two shows that I have not filled in on. And you know, fingers crossed, Richard Tita, this uh, it could be could be happening. Well, you've now crossed off whatever it wants in their bucket list, which is a uh, legal podcast. Russell Knight is also with us from the law office of Russell Knight. Russell is a fellow Canadian from Saskatchewan. Yeah. I'm 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 a I, I've never been to Saskatchewan, but I uh, I'm a fan of the CFL and the Rough Riders are there. Brian, the Rough Riders are famous because for a time there was only what nine teams in the CFL, and mm-hmm. two of them were named Rough Riders. So uh, Russell uh, practices family law and divorce law. Russell, welcome to Legal Faceoff. And we know Russell from a common friend, Tina from. Uh, Mr. Fretzen has been on our program before. Yes, Steve Fretzen is like the Kevin Bacon for the legal industry. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he knows everybody, and he's, he's a terrific guy and a good friend. All right, guys, we've got seven breaking legal stories from all different parts of the world. First one involves a lawsuit that was filed, announced yesterday, by the Attorney General of the state of New York uh, against the National Rifle Association, the NRA, and a pretty broad lawsuit alleging years of misconduct by leaders of the NRA, including CEO Wayne LaPierre. Uh, the lawsuit alleges that um, Wayne LaPierre, as well as other members of the NRA management, have misappropriated funds, have uh, taken the budget of the NRA from a surplus to a massive deficit in the last few years, because of expenditures, expenditures for personal vacations, uh, multiple, I think there was eight trips to the Bahamas, Tina, use yeah. of multiple private planes, um, just a host of uh, issues uh, alleging financial improprieties. They were also, there's also a concurrent suit that was brought by the District of Columbia um attorney general so there's lots of issues alleging misappropriation by the nra this comes of course not very long before the election president trump has already come out yesterday and said this lawsuit is terrible it's political based he encouraged the nra which has been chartered in new york state since 1871 trump encouraged them to move to texas which is a little more friendly Oh, Tina, what do you make of this lawsuit? Is it political or is there a strong legal basis to it? Well, it it seems to me, at least based on the information I know about it, that there is definitely um, a a 
a set of claims here. I mean, it, it looks pretty suspicious. For example, one statistic I remember was that LaPierre and his family took like eight trips to the Bahamas and the amount that they're alleging he spent of NRA funds were like, it was like $800,000 or something like that. It was outrageous or $500,000. So when you start doing the math, um, some of these expenditures that they're claiming were done with NRA funds are, are pretty outrageous. Um, there obviously are claims that this is not politically based, but everything is political these days. And it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, I think, well, you know, even people who may otherwise be pro NRA, um, when you look at the political context here, we've had a, a very conservative president over the last several years and the NRA has arguably been more empowered and has more support behind it than maybe it's had in the past. And yet the financial straits that they find themselves in right now, um, you, you have to wonder where, where this is going, but I, I, it's completely, I mean, it is political, but there seem to be, you know, allegations that need to be looked into further. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a huge problem. Brian, the NRA president has said that this is a baseless, premeditated attack on the organization and on the Second Amendment. Um, the attorney general who has brought the lawsuit is a Democrat. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's uh, to go back to your original question, it's definitely both political and, you know, granted, I am not an attorney, so my legal advice is worth everything you're going to pay for it. Uh, there does seem to be some malfeasance here. Uh, the uh, the Attorney General of New York, uh, Letitia James, has called the NRA a terrorist organization in the past. So we know that there's some there's some bias there uh, from a political standpoint. But the numbers itself that the NRA has lost sixty four million dollars in the last three years, um, th there seems to be. If I'm if I'm an NRA member and I've been sending in my dues and I see this, I go, wait a minute. If we're all sending in our money. Uh, you don't really need to keep flying to the Bahamas. So I think there's both. It's definitely, it's definitely, uh, you know, has a political slant and especially right now before the election. But uh, I don't know, you guys know better than me, fraud and uh, embezzlement and all the, all those kind of uh, layman terms that I would put to the numbers that I'm seeing seem to apply. All right, let's move on to, to our next story. This involves the police officer who, uh, was charged with shooting, fatally shooting Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. He has now, shockingly to some people, filed a lawsuit, and therefore he should have his job immediately reinstated. Uh, Garrett, Garrett Rolfe is the officer in question. He was, of course, fired on two Brooks outside a Wendy's restaurant. And that is now, again, alleged that because he was fired right away without an investigation, that he was denied notice, he was denied due process, he was denied um, what his rules require, which is a disciplinary hearing, and that's in direct violation of the Atlanta Municipal Code. Uh, he also apparently left the state to go to Florida which is a uh, violation of his bonds uh, term. So the issue here, I think, Tina, is whether in this day and age, when officers are under much more scrutiny and, like in this case, are being fired much quicker, whether that is a violation of due process. Because in the past, we've seen these investigations last much longer. Uh, in this case, they lasted a day. It should also be noted that the police chief in Atlanta who fired him also resigned herself the next day. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's a really tough situation, but bottom line, even the lawsuit itself said that he could be disciplined or he could be terminated for cause. We've seen certain instances where police officers are suspended during these types of um, investigations and ultimately figuring out what actually happened. Um, I, I think that what was done in terms of terminating him was reasonable given the circumstances as I know them. Um, and I think the fact that this guy went to Florida, I find it really questionable, um, you know, his intent and his acting in good faith here that he ends up going to Florida um, when he wasn't, he wasn't permitted to. Um, and, you know, in just the whole circumstance of how he got here in the first instance, in terms of how 
Rayshard Brooks was was fire was um, shot in the back when he was running away. Um, I think what was done was reasonable, and I don't think the lawsuit is reasonable. Russell, uh, we all want justice more than ever, right? We see with these civil unrest going on in society, uh, these issues are at the forefront. Um, We all saw the video, and seemingly from the video, it does seem unequivocally that this officer has some criminal liability. But are we rushing the judgment when he is fired within a day without affording him the basic rights of due process and looking into the investigation further? Or is it a case where this video is so compelling that it's obvious what happened and who cares about further investigation? Well, as a lawyer, I'm always on the side of people having their day in court. Um, I guess maybe move the day up in court up sooner. That's the issue. You want to close out an issue, give him his due process sooner rather than later. Brian, your thoughts? Should there be more investigation or should we rely on uh, what we see with our own eyes in determining whether an officer should keep his job? Again, we're not talking about his trial here. All we're ta- He's looking for the court to reinstate uh, his job and allow him to be on the force until at least investigation is completed. I think in this case, in a combination of the video and taking a day, I would assume that they figured the the Atlanta Police Department being the they, they figured there was, they didn't need to see anymore. This was enough. And as Tina said, uh, his contract said he could be fired by cause. Well, this video, uh, it would be the same if he had committed some other heinous act on video. They, they take a day, they ask the witnesses at the scene, whatever it is, and they've realized, yeah, it's... This is a fireable offense on cause. So I think the I think the lawsuit's frivolous. And again, back to Tina's point, that he left the state. Now, he's a law enforcement officer. He knows how bond works. You don't get to leave the state without permission. Uh, even I know that. You know, I've watched <laughs> enough uh, law TV. I know how this works. If, I, if I'm on bond, I can't just be ski-daddling down to Florida, which is a mistake anyway. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think he has, uh, he has any grounds. Love that law TV. That's, right, moving listen, on to our third story, uh, we've seen. Go ahead. No, I, I was saying that's how I learned everything. That's how I operate on a daily basis. I know my rights. I saw it on TV. Damn right. Moving on to the husband of the Los Angeles County, and uh, there is a video by one of the protesters who was outside her house protesting right on her doorstep, where her husband comes out brandishing a handgun. And he says, get off my porch, I'll shoot you, I don't care who you are. Well, now, not his wife, but the attorney general of the state of California has filed charges against the husband, um, alleging uh, three misdemeanor counts of assault with a firearm from this incident, which happened on March 2nd. We've seen other similar videos, we've covered it on our show, most notably the St. Louis couple who came out brandishing a uh, what looked like an AK-47 and uh, and a handgun, they have also been charged. So is this a case of uh, zealous prosecution, or do you think it's appropriate uh, given the circumstances? I mean, the way I understand it, these um, protesters, these Black Lives Matter protesters, had gone to. Um, Jackie Lacey's doorstep and one of the protesters knocked on the door and her husband responded by opening the door and brandishing the gun and the justification that's been given by the Lacey's is that um, he truly feared for their safety because the context of this is that there have been other threats um, and and bad acts um, directed towards the Lacey's um, in, in recent past and I guess my understanding and ability to side with the Lacey sort of ends when he opens the door after they knock. And my sense is, and if it were me, if I were very worried about my safety, I would not be opening the door and responding to someone knocking or ringing the doorbell if I thought that my life was being put in jeopardy. And, and so I think that's the critical issue here is that the reaction doesn't necessarily match up with what the stimulus was for brandishing the weapon. And, and so 
I, I don't think, based on what I know, that this was a reasonable reaction to what happened. Well, Russell, to that point, you would think that the husband of someone who is the chief law enforcement officer of L.A. County would know that the reaction to a threat, albeit on your doorstep, should be call the police. You know, maybe don't come out brandishing a, a pistol or do you think otherwise? Uh, I think when you want to de-escalate a situation, you don't bring a gun out. Uh, I can understand if he was afraid, but he should have known better. He should have called the police. He should have kept his door shut. I'm not sure if what will happen to him eventually, maybe the charges will get dropped by another authority, just like what happened in Missouri. We'll see. Tina, we're seeing fights. I mean, a lot of video stories today. We're seeing fights. We're seeing uh, fights all over the country involving people who want people to wear masks, fighting people who don't want to wear masks. I also saw a video inside an Uber where the Uber passenger literally ripped down the plastic partition and started choking the Uber driver because he didn't want to wear a mask. Things are getting a little bit out of control out there. And thankfully, we're seeing the authorities prosecute uh, a lot of these people, including one case at a Staples in New Jersey. Yeah, so this case was, I don't know if folks have seen this video, but it was in pretty heavy rotation over the past few days. Um, we're, we're talking about a Staples store, as Rich said, in New Jersey. There is a woman who um, had just had surgery, was walking with a cane. She had a liver transplant. She's in a Staples. It looks like she's getting ready to check out. She notices that another woman in the store is pretty pretty close to her and doesn't have her mask on. Um, and she turns around. She, being the woman with the cane, turns around and mentions to the woman, you should have your mask on. Um, the video from the video cam in the store is pretty outrageous. What you see is um, the woman, the younger woman, approaching the woman who told her to wear a mask from behind, yanking the cane from her and put, pulling her down to the ground um, and injuring this woman to the point where she actually needed to have surgery for a broken tibia. Um, it, it's really outrageous. And it's just, um, you know, the first thing I thought of when I saw this is that this is an angry young person who reacts this way you're supposed to be wearing a mask those are the rules of engagement you either do it or you don't um and when someone asks you someone who is probably immune compromised most likely because she just had a pretty significant organ surgery who asks you to please put your mask on for you to react this way to the point where this woman needs to go on the operating table again it's just outrageous Brian, you have infamously gotten into many fights at different staples over the course of your life, usually over things like posted notes and highlighters. But do we need to crack down more on these people? First of all, Rich, uh, the gag order on those office supply brawls is still in effect. <laughs> so I don't appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, highlighters do bring out some emotion in me. But that point aside, uh, without getting too political, I think... The problem is we don't have a clear message from the top. So now we have these mandates. Uh, and I was going to ask you guys the difference between a mandate and a law. But who's supposed to enforce this? Um, my thought is the stores. So in this case, Staples. But then you have, you know, some some Staples worker who's not a trained security person at the door. They're so maybe instead of the woman getting beaten up, now it's the Staples employee. Uh, I think. When we have to rely on human nature, we are in uh, a deep pile. And so, yes, I think it is up to law enforcement and the legal community to prosecute these people when they step out. If somebody asks you to put on your mask when you know you're supposed to be wearing it in that store, because every place I've gone, big signs on the door. Doesn't matter if it's a grocery store, Staples, uh, the ban has been lifted. I've been able to go back in there, get a ream of paper and then get out quickly. Uh, you... You need to you need to respect that. And if you don't want to wear the mask, every place I know says, hey, then we'll bring it out to you. You don't have to come in. But if we don't if if they don't start really prosecuting these people and sending a message that this kind of violence will not be tolerated, uh, the, the de-evolution of society is going to continue without sounding too dramatic. Brian, does your mask have a mustache on the exterior? 
My mask actually says, uh, stay away from me. But yes, it has a mustache. Uh, I, the, COVID, the COVID stash and soul patch is in full effect. I've been monkeying with my look since March. I actually have hair now, Rich, which I never had before. That's amazing. Yeah. Tina, the uh, border wall is back on the, back in the news. What's going on? Yes. Yeah, so um, last week, a very divided Supreme Court um, decided that they were not going to block President Trump um, from spending military funds on the border wall. There's underlying litigation going on. Um, we had four justices who were pretty vociferous in their dissent. But to scroll back, it was about a year ago in July of 2019 when the Supreme Court, um, there was a, a stay, an emergency stay that was entered about a year ago that enabled President Trump to use $2.5 billion of military funds uh, for the border wall. And so the Sierra Club and the Southern Border Communities Coalition had asked the Supreme Court to lift this stay um, because there's a recognition that the longer this stay is in order and the longer that, um, that the president is, is able to continue to build the wall as it's been built during this stay, it essentially would be a way for the administration to bypass what Congress has denied um, the president being able to do and what other courts like the Ninth Circuit um, have said is a violation of the Appropriations Clause. So it was interesting because Justice Breyer really took the lead in, in the court's um, dissent here and a year ago had said that there were some basic questions about whether private parties could even enforce Congress's appropriations power. Um, and he had suggested that the stay that was entered a year ago was really for the purposes of enabling the government to finalize contracts, but not really to actually go ahead and build this wall. So he said that, you know, apparently fast forward to last week, the government has finalized those contracts. And so the irreparable harm that they were claiming was going on a year ago has been circumvented. And so... I think what a lot of critics are saying is that this is really the administration's attempt to bypass what Congress and other courts have um, decided they, they don't want to enable the administration to do. So this is, this is a very hotly contested decision, and the underlying litigation continues. Russell, no border wall has been able to be tall enough or strong enough to keep you and I from emigrating from Canada. Um, seems like this issue uh, obviously has gone on for before the last election, gone on for many years. Uh, it seems like the issue will probably be decided at the next election. What are your thoughts on this? D didn't they just spend the money to reinforce previous existing parts of the wall? So it's kind of not, doesn't really have any effect one way or the other. So, I mean, at the end, it's something, it's either effective or it's not. And that's what people should care about. Brian, what are your thoughts on getting our Mexican friends to pay for that wall. As yeah, that's, uh, that's going to work out. That'll happen as soon as I get the pony that I've been waiting for since I was three. <laughs> so I'm very, I, listen, hope springs eternal, Rich. I'm, I'm still got my fingers crossed for the pony and for uh, Mexico, just dumping tons and tons of money so that we can build this wall that nobody. Absolutely. Really Tina, the uh, bar exam has been the topic of some of our prior discussions. Uh, given what's going on with the pandemic, very difficult for people to gather in large groups to take the bar exam. The ABA House this week came out with uh, some new rules. What did they say? So there was a resolution um, that came out um, a few days ago where state courts are being urged to defer in-person bar exams during the pandemic and to develop alternative plans to having people in person. What's really interesting is that according to the National Conference of Bar Examiners, 24 jurisdictions, so we're talking about like half the states essentially, had in-person July bar exams, and 15 have um, them currently planned for September. Now, I think we're going to see some slippage on that. I know Illinois was originally going to have the bar exam, and my, my understanding is at the latest um, where it's coming out on that is I think it's going to be online in, in October. And I think that with 
where the ABA has come down is going to make other states that have not yet had the in-person exams think twice about it. If they were going to have bar exams in person, but maybe later in the year, um, but they really encourage that um, not just postponing the bar exam, but making sure that those who want to do remote bar exams have the right platforms in place in order to be able to do it and just the right guardrails so that um, it's done in a way that makes sense and really recognizes all the different interests. There are some people who, even under the best of circumstances, when it comes to taking a remote exam, have issues to doing it at home because of their home circumstances. Um, but there's a lot of debate here because there have been some who have been proponents of just completely punting having people take a bar exam. Um, others feel very strongly it's part of what you do to become a licensed lawyer, and it's a really necessary step in that process. So it's going to be interesting as COVID continues and as we see what some are saying are the second or third waves of COVID as we head into the fall. It's going to be very interesting to see how this evolves. Our last story on Legal Faceoff involves a very high-profile divorce uh, and a prenup. So Dr. Dre uh, is getting divorced. His wife, Nicole Young, has uh, try, is now trying to get out of a prenup. She says she was forced to sign it back in 1996. And she said that when she signed that document, she was pressured into it by Dr. Dre. She said that she felt backed into a corner, uh, was pressured, intimidated. She said that she felt she had no option but to hire a lawyer, and the lawyer she hired was uh, suggested by Dr. Dre and his team, and she unwillingly signed it. Uh, she said that two years into the marriage, Dr. Dre acknowledged that he felt ashamed and that he pressured her into the document and made a big show over tearing it up in front of her. Um, Dr. Dre, of course, says that that's not true through sources. He says that he never expressed that shame and is looking to enforce the prenup. Dr. Dre, of course, is now uh, worth about a million dollars, uh, having um, been one of the inventors of Beats, and uh, that was bought out by Apple. So media mogul now the prenup now is obviously uh worth much more than it was back then so we're gonna get to russell in a moment because this is his wheelhouse tina so you know it's interesting because you know she's claiming that he tore it up you know you know it was like literally tearing it up right but i'd love to hear russell's thoughts on this and brian's as well but at the end of the day if they really wanted to back out of this prenup they should have papered it and now it's a he said, she said, and he's claiming it never happened. She's claiming that it did. And to avoid these types of situations, and usually these agreements claim and state as part of the belts and suspenders of agreements that this is the full and final agreement between the parties and any changes to the agreement have to be made in writing, signed by both of the parties. And so um, I think it's, you know, I, I just, I have a hard time believing, I mean, I kind of know that how these things go when everything's great in a relationship, you don't think to uh, document or put an addendum to an agreement about the dissolution or the potential dissolution of a marriage. But my guess is that somewhere in that agreement, it made it pretty clear that any amendment had to be made in writing. So Russell, what do you think here? Um, her defense is that she's that is duress was the reason why she signed it. She's going to have a hard time. She has to prove duress, something that she'd have to prove from 25 years ago. She had her own attorney, whether Dr. Dre's legal team directed that attorney to her or not. The attorney had an exclusive obligation to her to represent her and provide her advice. That advice may very well have been, do not sign this, but we don't know. We'll see. The other issue is that he, she alleges as some kind of defense that the contract, the prenuptial agreement was torn up. It doesn't matter if something was torn up unless every contract is torn up and thus there is no evidence of it. But finally, the most interesting thing is this isn't how celebrities get divorced. Normally, celebrities enter into a binding arbitration that is completely sealed where they hire a retired judge who then reviews the evidence proffered as though... Uh, it was all in front of a real court 
where it is really accessible, but everything is secret. This is why we never hear anything except from the most, I, mean, I don't want to say unstable, but um, the celebrities that dance to the beat of their own drummer, like Brad Pitt and uh, Angelina Jolie, for example, are doing their divorce in actual court. Meanwhile, everyone else, we never hear anything. So I wonder why they're doing this in the court of public opinion and the actual court instead of just doing it behind closed doors like everyone else. I think that's the real story here. All right, guys. Well, Brian, we're going we're gonna to get you a, a little, we're going to end off the show on this Dr. Dre story with a little game I put together uh, that I think is right up your alley as well as everyone else's. So you know, I'm a big fan of Dr. Dre. He's written some of the most powerful songs, but also some really incredibly romantic ballads. And I often confuse, as many of you do, Dr. Dre songs with that of Air Supply, another, um, you know, real, another band that puts out a lot of ballads. So we're going to play a game that I like to call Dr. Dre or Air Supply. So I'm going to name you a song that's often confused between Air Supply and Dr. Dre. And you tell me which one of these prolific artists is responsible for it. Are you ready? Yes. No, but yes. All right. Everyone's in on this game. So the first one is Stranded on Death Row. Is that Air Supply or Dr. Dre? Ding, ding, ding. I'm going to go with Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre it is. Uh, Tina, Body Glove. Body Glove. Air Supply or Dr. Dre? You know, it's really close, but I'm going to have to go with Dr. Dre. Uh, Incorrect. Air Supply. Oh, Tina, you need to listen to more Yacht Rock. Exactly. Uh, Russell, this is a hard one. I have to admit this is a tough one. These nuts, air supply or Dr. Dre? These nuts, classic. Air supply or Dr. Dre? That's a Dr. Dre classic, from what I remember. There you go, excellent. Uh, Brian, East Coast West Coast Killers, K I L L A S. Air supply or Dr. Dre? The funny thing is, written by Air Supply, but made popular by <laughs> Dr. Dre. Absolutely true. Uh, Tina Mumbo Jumbo. Air Supply or Dr. J? Air Supply. Air Supply is correct. And finally, my favorite. This is really one that's a romantic ballad. Uh, Russell, this one is Bitch. Again, not Bitch Please 1, but the sequel, Bitch Please 2. Is that Air Supply or Dr. Dre? I'm going to go with Dr. Dre. Brian? I'm going to go with Dr. Dre. Yeah. I'm going to go with Dr. Dre as well. He will soon be writing a Bitch Please 3 after this divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Tina, the answer is, of course, Dr. Dre. Thank you all for playing everyone's favorite game, Air Supply or Dr. Dre. I got to give credit to uh, one of my favorite shows, Billy on the Street, for that one, because Billy on the Street does some really hilarious stuff. Tina, very challenging legal face-off today, given my uh, technological issues. We really appreciate having Russell Knight from the law office of Russell Knight, and, of course, Brian Noonan, friend of the show, longtime WGN personality. Uh, thank you both for joining us on Legal Faceoff. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for uh, our trusty producer, Ben Anderson, for our other producer, Emily Flores, and of course our host, Sam Panyanovich, who's off somewhere. Tina, thank you for this week's edition of Legal Faceoff. We'll see you in uh, two weeks. And thank you, Rich, and to the Lenkoff family. Enjoy your road trip. See you guys. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...